money is the vehicle to acquire the experiences that are the richest, the most valuable, the most poignant in your life. And to be deprived of that is to live a life of some level of deprivation. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. I am very excited for you to hear this fantastic episode with Todd Cashton and our in-house musician, Rootub, who sings an instant money anthem for Todd at the end of this episode. You did not want to miss his wonderful song that he created on the spot based on Todd's story. Before we get into this episode, if you could do me a favor, if you could head over to Apple Music and leave a review, that would be greatly appreciated. They really do help those reviews to bring on great guests like Todd. So who is Todd Cashton if you have not heard of him? Well, he is a PhD professor of psychology at George Mason University, and he is a leading authority on well-being, curiosity, courage, and resilience. Todd has actually published over 200 scientific articles, and his work has been cited more than 32,000 times. Yes, that's 32,000 times. That is a lot of citations. In fact, the American Psychological Association awarded him for a distinguished scientific early career contributions to psychology. Todd is fascinating in his thinking and how he approaches this world that we live in. And he's documented those thoughts in a few books. Book number one is Curious, which was a fantastic book. Number two is The Upside of Your Dark Side, which both have been translated into 15 language. But his most recent book, what we spend a lot of today's episode on, is The Art of Insubordination. This book is fascinating. It's really, really insightful. And I think it allows us to really cultivate this idea of being a principal rebellion as a way to peek out without doubt to question our money stories. Because often, it seems that we've been prescribed these money stories. And I feel like if we cultivate and embrace this idea of being a principal rebellion, we can then start to take that pen back and write our own money stories, the version that we most desire. During this conversation, Todd talks about fantastic ways that we can all start to aspire to be this principal rebellion, how curiosity can help us actually embrace this principled rebellion life. Todd touches on other things such as how money can increase our well-being when we use it properly and how cultivating a sense of psychological flexibility can help us gain clarity over our life stories and our money stories. We also touch on how embracing our negative or dark emotions can actually help us psychologically. I hope you enjoy this fantastic conversation with Todd Cashton, who 
who is giving a voice to all the wonderful principled rebels out there making a world a better place. One final note, please go out, support Todd and his work, and buy a copy of this fantastic book, The Art of Insubordination. Enjoy. Todd, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me here. I'm excited to have you on the show. When I sent you an email to see if you wanted to come on the show, I I had talked about how your book, Curiosity, really found me or I found it the right time in my life as I've been contemplating what the role curiosity plays in my life just due to certain personal things. And I'm happy to have this conversation with you. So thank you for writing that book and the book and the art of insubordination that we're going to get to. But if you, as I've heard you mention several times, curiosity, I want to start there. It's something that we can cultivate. And I've heard you talk about, we can turn dials up or down to embody more or less curiosity. And I want to use curiosity to be a starting point for a conversation for your story, your life story, which has so many elements I didn't know where to start. But I want to start with your grandma. It appears that your grandma was a principal rebel. And now having studied curiosity for over 20 years with all the knowledge you have about curiosity, when you look back at your upbringing towards with your grandma, how, if anything at all, can you see some of the seeds that she perhaps was planting that led to your love for curiosity? Oh, great opening. Just to to have nostalgic experiences with my grandmother who raised me. So she worked for Prudential. She worked for Lehman Brothers, which doesn't exist anymore. She was one of the first women on Wall Street. And anyone can imagine, go back a couple decades before The Wolf of Wall Street, the movie came out. And it was before Mad Men, that time period. You know, this was not a good time to be a woman working in, in the finance world. And she would describe lunchtime. And as all of us adults know, lunchtime as an adult is no different than middle school in terms of there are socially attractive people at some tables and there are people that you get sucked into a conversation about cleaning grout at other tables, real adulting stuff. And my grandmother was very comfortable being extremely introverted. And she would describe these stories of she would bring a book to work and she just wanted to be left alone. She liked her muffin. She liked her black coffee. No Starbucks back then. And she grabbed her book. And then all these people would always sit down with her because they were always intrigued about when my grandma talked, she talked because she knew she had something to say. And she really, being a New Yorker, despised how flirtatious most New Yorkers are about babbling. And because of that, people were so intrigued and fascinated when she spoke, people's heads turned because, they, oh, Selma's going to say something. And this is its kind of like Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court, who goes a decade without saying a single word. And she attracted accidentally all these people and would pass this on to my twin brother and I of, I really hate people, but people can't get enough of me. And she wasn't bragging. It was really annoying to her. But the way I interpreted those stories was very different, being a different personality type than her, much more extroverted, which was... There's a secret here, which is selectively choosing what you say, asking the questions that's perfectly curated to the person such that everybody wants a little bit more. Nobody likes reading a 600-page book where it could have been an Atlantic article or a two-page piece of the Wall Street Journal. And there's a certain strategy of curiosity in the social realm of give a little bit of information, make sure you get – there's some – jigsaw puzzles that's in a puzzle that people would care about and let people autonomously find the other puzzle pieces themselves by having this give and take in a conversation. So that last point, when you say give them a little piece and let them figure out, 
I feel like, and I say I feel because when you said that, the feeling I get is like, wait, but I need to tell that person. And I'm like, wait, is that just to prove that I'm trying to show them how smart I am? And now this is just all about me. <laughs> so it seems like your grandmother really figured out this, I guess, ability to be at peace of not projecting that, oh, I know everything. Whereas I feel sometimes people say things because they just got to say something and they want to attract people where your grandma, she knew to say something when she had something to say. So I find that interesting. Yeah. I mean, just think about the way that I, I just ended that story. Yeah. I could have gone and told you the story kind of like, uh, you know, when her, when her husband died after, you know, they've been married for decades. There's a great story there. I could have told you about what it was like for her intern, her college intern to become the president of Prudential Bank, where she wasn't promoted at all, how she responded. I left the story at the end. It's kind of like that was Selma's approach, which was the story has an ending. You let me know if you want me to go further with that. And I'm not saying I abide by the Selmer Figer principles, but there's something to be said for listeners out there and for us to actually really consider of maybe there's a little bit too much noise as everyone speaks a little bit too much as here we are on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> when you ended that way, I was, I was almost lost. I'm like, wait, okay, and then what? And then I was... <laughs> right. That's, that's the Selma Figer technique. It's fascinating. I'm not going to spend this whole time going about your history, but um, I think it's important that if listeners aren't totally familiar with your story, I see there that's a very good example of how she embedded that seed to help you cultivate curiosity or become curious about curiosity. The other one is becoming a principled rebel, as you call it in your new book, The Art of Insubordination. It seems like you were following a family script because I understand you went and worked on Wall Street. And then one day, perhaps when you're hopping over the fence of the golf course, having some beer, you decided to try this principal rebel. At that time, what was happening and what made you or allowed you or gave you permission to go against the grain? Clearly, you, you really read the first book. So other than the fact that it was psychedelic mushrooms and not, and not beer, but that's inconsequential to the story. Was that in the uh, book? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was. Oh, I'm... Miss that. <laughs> yeah, it was one of the first times that I actually had mushrooms. You know what? I mean, one of the things that my grandmother always taught me was, you know, as someone who's brought up as Jewish and my grandfather, who, you know, also raised me as well, he, he was an Orthodox Jew, but my brother and I were not raised to actually imbibe by the religion, just the culture. We were given that choice. And that stuck with me as a parent as well, which you might, we might get to later. In terms of they said, you know, you can choose the direction that you want to go to, but just know that we're going to go to temple. What you do with the information when we get there is up to you. Just that alone, you're talking two generations from now, previously, is a very progressive view. And I don't even think it's actually has reached its apex in society yet, which is I'm not going to indoctrinate you with my political ideology. I'm not going to indoctrinate you with my religiosity. I'm not going to indoctrinate you with my belief system, except for the fact that you're going to be educated, you're going to go to college, and you're going to go to grad school as well. It wasn't even just stopping in college. Not, not to get any career. She would always say is that it's going to be harder later. So just collect as much education as humanly possible formally, and then you'll be a lifelong learner. It's like a Mad Libs for life where it's just so many blanks, but you've got the, the general gist of how to kind of 
build a foundational architectural framework for living well with that approach. And I pass it on to all of my students and every young people that I meet, which is when people ask me about going to college, I'm like, you don't have to go to college to be a carpenter. You don't have to go to college to be, uh, you know, to be an amazing plumber and to be, you know, an, an amazing car salesman. But with this knowledge, imagine the conversations you can have and imagine when an opportunity arises and someone comes into the car dealership and they're starting, you know, this, you know, some kind of uh, virtual reality augmented contact lenses company. And they're like, hey, by the way, do you want in? We're just starting out. You can ask the right questions and have enough information to take advantage of that. You can't exploit opportunities if you don't have any bearing about the areas that are possible, the adjacent possible, like having that imagination there. And part of that is your bookshelf is filled with books. My bookshelf is filled with books. Part of it is the content, but really it's about learning how to think. And this is like an element of, if I knew this now, you know, when I was younger, my entire career path would be different. Everyone's happy with the way they, in terms of all the adversity they experience, but I didn't really appreciate is that the quickest and most efficient way to gaining wisdom is downloading all the different ways people think. And as a result of having so many different varieties, you figure out what matches your temperament, your values, and your background. And you become like the best version of you possible without a Tony Robbins bumper sticker on the back of your car. The, another one that's making me curious to go down the bumper sticker, but thank you for that. And your grandmother just has so much wisdom that you do what you want with it. Going back to the when you went to church, as a parent of two young kids, you always aspire to do the best for your children, but sometimes it feels like we want so much control and do this and do this. But I love that. I think it was Seth Godin who had said somewhere about as a father, he wants to help his kids solve interesting problems. And he just talked about how facilitating them through the process. And what you're saying reminds me of that. That's funny because uh, my addition with that way, I train my girls, my three daughters to ask interesting questions. Ah. And so the two go very nicely. And Seth Godin was nice enough to endorse the book. But the, you know, for me, it's, that's why in my bio is training my daughters to be great conversationalists, which is just the other day, I just started playing pickleball like a lot of people during this pandemic of, all right, here's a sport. I'm in my 40s. I can't play football. I can't do Greco and Roman wrestling anymore, but I can play pickleball. I started bringing my daughters around. And just the other day, maybe last week, was it's all adults. And my daughter's nine, my youngest. And she's never even played two on two. And I just brought her with me. And it was all, there were no kids there. Right away, I said, hey, everyone, listen, I'm bringing my nine-year-old. She's never played two on two before. Is there anyone that's willing to allow some white belts onto the court with them? And a whole bunch of people jumped up, which speaks about the culture of this pickleball group of 90 people here in Virginia. and. She knew no idea where to stand, how to hold the paddle. This is the relevant part of this story is unbeknownst to me because, because I played against her with somebody else. When we had the car ride home, she said, dad, it was an interesting thing. Now remember, she's nine. So don't lose fact of this detail. She said, dad, it was really interesting. The guy that I was playing with wasn't making any conversation. So it was the first time I ever started a conversation with an adult and I didn't know where to start. I paused because I wanted her to answer up by herself, which is hard to do as a parent. And she said, so I just asked him, like, what's your life about? Which is kind of like this cute, endearing, freaking stupid question, but it's so open-ended, right? It's not a closed-ended question. Do you have a dog? Which is what you would expect a kid to ask. And because of that, 
they were talking for like 20 minutes on the courts that happened there. And I get a text later from this guy who basically is this guy, Elliot, who said, listen, my wife and I were saying, my God, she was such a good conversationalist. I can't believe she's nine. And it all started. And this is kind of the key message of this. Well, there's a few. One is about parenting your kids of giving them a huge runway to be who they are in that place and not overly control the environment. But two, really teach your kids that the portal to understanding another person and gaining perspectives is is just an open-ended question. And anything could happen with that. But if you where you start is do you allow creative freedom or do you, do you constrain the content and possibilities of where a conversation can go. And I was just so proud that at age nine, she picked it up. That is fascinating. My kids are three and five. I get overjoyed with the feeling of my version of that example of how proud of a father you are. Yeah, it's just nice to hear a dad talk about his kids that way, about how proud they are in the fact that they stepped into their own light. So I'm taking a master's in positive psychology right now. One of the professors said, when we see others, it gives them permission to be themselves. And it makes me think of that with like children. If we see them for whom they are, they can be themselves and talk to this older individual. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, right? To really see another person. You know, there's this exercise I do in my science of well-being class. I've been teaching this since grad school, 1998, when Seligman termed this, coined this phrase, looking for Maslow, positive psychology. And one of the exercises that I do is I have people silently pass each other in rows throughout the classroom, kind of like snaking through the classroom. And the whole idea is when you pass another person, you have to make eye contact and just nod your head and really look into their eyes and really see what they're feeling right there without judgment. And then there's one more instructional set. Let yourself be seen. Don't try to modify your facial expression to try to match the other person. Just be with whatever emotional state you have. So all these people are passing each other by in class and they're everyone. You have to pause, look at them and nod. No words. It's the whole class is silent. I play uh, Brian Eno as a, uh, it's got a, he has an album called, I think it's Atmospheres and it's the soundtrack for Apollo landing on the moon. So it's, you know, no lyrics, plays in the background and then everyone stops. And then I just like, say, listen, tell me what your experience was like being seen. And a lot of people cry. I mean, these are people in their 20s and a lot of guys do as well, which is cool because they're breaking the masculinity script. And the reason is like, we don't let ourselves be seen. We just, you know, there's a certain emotions for men. It's really cool to kind of like meet someone. If you're, if you're feeling negative emotions, anger is like a good one for men to bond with. For women, it's more sadness or anxiety. Um, but even there, you only let the surface come. You don't let the, the anxiety of wondering, do I even belong anywhere? Do I know like why I'm even like existing right now? You know, this existential dread. Like you don't let people see that anxiety that you experience of like, is life worth living? It's not suicidality. It's just, it's so hard. And it's so difficult and letting someone see that. So you assume people will kind of push you away of like, whoa, 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 guy, guy, we're just watching the Super Bowl. Get some wings and salsa, bro. That's what we kind of, we expect people to respond. But in reality, most people are like, man, I'm so glad you went there because no one does. No one does. It's considered awkward if I just started staring at you in the eyes, <laughs> especially at a close distance. But I can imagine it's a powerful experience for them. Yeah. What a neat exercise. Yeah, I, my mind is going so many different areas here. 
your face lit up when you thought about your two kids. And I was wondering what proud moment popped into your head as I was sharing or after I shared mine. Our oldest kid is, uh, his name's Lewis. He's He's quite adventurous and outgoing and uh, loves sports. I like sports too. And that's always been a, a strength of his, his physical activity. Uh, he's in kindergarten now. Just with some of the reflections I've been doing on myself, I've been trying to become more curious on what a kind person is, what empathy is. And my wife's really good at that. I'm not, I'm a financial planner. I've been distracted by the pursuit of wealth, <laughs> not to really understand what really empathy means. Like I knew the textbook definition, but I didn't really embody it. So this has been something I've been trying to cultivate and get better with the help of my wife over the last three or four years. And we've been having these conversations with him about being kind and what it means to see other people and help them if they're in the playground and uh, no one's playing with them. And we had an interview with our, our the teacher. And I know he's just in kindergarten, but it was a big moment for us. And she's like, you know what? Lewis is one of the kindest kids in the class. And every time there's, well, she didn't say every time, but a lot of times when there's a kid who doesn't have someone to play with, he'll go over and say, hey, do you want to play with us? Because he's from a group that they were in like uh, daycare together and they all moved. To, so there's a cohort of them. He's got a but, tribe. Yeah, yeah. And she said, he'll go over and ask them if they want to play. And then she's like, and he's always so emotionally stable is the word she said in class that I use. If we have a sub, I, I tell them that Lewis is one of the people who can show them around. I'm like, what? Wonderful. <laughs> so that kind of, that was fresh, just happened. So that was going on in my mind. <laughs> no, I love, I mean, I would love that. You know, there's something that I say that I should probably start revising, which is the sensitive boys, it'll take a little bit longer for them to get incentivized for their behavioral accomplishments. So it takes like a 23, 24 before the world kind of catches up to to their beauty. And it's cool to kind of see it incentivized in kindergarten, as opposed to you have to play this, you know, this social hierarchy of who's the alpha male and kind of, and who's dominant and who's, who's strong and who can take a lot of insults, who could dish out a lot of insults as, as if there's this one path of being a man. Well, growing up in New York, that was the path. And you know, one of the things that, you know, you and I and many people who invest in the space of well-being are trying to do is saying, listen, these strengths and these virtues, they are not gendered or they shouldn't be gendered and they don't need to be gendered because they're all accessible and they're all learnable. And they're really just about break it down into what are the behaviors you engage in in moments. And clearly your son is, he really is experiencing the empathy of recognizing that kid could use some connection. I mean, he's not, he's not going to verbalize that in kindergarten, but he's doing it. And, you know, Aristotle talks about is virtue are the actions that you take over the course of your lifetime. And you don't get to proclaim yourself as being virtuous. It's at the end of your life that other people have testimonies where they're, you know, they honestly evaluate and say that was a virtuous life or that was yeah, I mean, maybe it's the background of you being a psychologist, but I'm sorry now I'm going into this more self-disclosure, but it's interesting how you say like you're with Aristotle there, how we're judged on our actions. And a part of me, the reason why I've dived into this podcast, like the the relationship we have with money is that I was distracting myself with this pursuit of money because what I've realized by embracing fear, pain, and the idea that money was just a way for me to really silence my inner child who was super shy. And I just wanted to be seen and heard. And money is a good way on the surface to be like, oh, look, at I'm making so much money. And especially when people start saying like, oh, you got a promotion. Good job. Oh, look at the job you have now. And 
it was interesting that even when I had my first kid, that these were not things I was living. Like to Aristotle's thing is I, they were aspirational, but uh, I wasn't actually living them. And it was interesting how through investigating those, those emotions, I started to learn a lot about myself and how really it's the actions that will model the way for my kids. What's interesting about that, Sean, is, and this gets to the principled rebel part of what I've been focusing on for six years, is this is the cultural currency we've been trained to accept as how you become socially attractive is you acquire wealth, you can showcase it, and you can acquire these experiences that attract other people or you could bring other people in. And what we've lost in this perverse social norm is just is to ask the question, not scientifically, but for each individual person, what is it that you actually need to acquire all of the psychological nutrients for you to be satisfied in your life? And, and one thing during this pandemic where one of my entire careers dissipated, which was public speaking and you know consulting because I wasn't traveling anywhere, is there was no drop in my psychological well-being, which made me realize, okay, I'm hustling so much to kind of generate all of these all of these resources. And yeah, I can, I can make a justification that it's going to help pay for my kid's college. But what am I sacrificing now for a future Todd, which I don't even know is going to be in need of, of resources when my kids go to college in the first place? Because these are precious moments. I mean, when you're in your 20s, your 30s, and your 40s, and no judgment to 50s, I'm just not including you in this category is that you are physically agile enough. I'm assuming, you know, you know, for those of you that aren't exercising, go do it. That's for another podcast. But you're physically healthy enough is that I can, we can go anywhere with our family and our kids. You know, we want to go to Mount Fuji and climb it. Boom, we're off tomorrow. You want to go to Utah and do um, the arches and, and just hike for 18 hours? Okay, my lower back's going to hurt a little bit, but I'll pop some ibuprofen. I can do it. That happens there. Want to go stand up paddleboarding? Want to go rock climbing? Want to play pickleball? Like, could just pick them up right away. The, and so why would you give up those moments now for finances that you potentially don't need? And these are acts of rebellion. You are questioning the societal currency of what is going to make you an effective member of society. And I really encourage to start playing around with all the norms that we have in terms of, are they working? For the, the Dr. Phil question, how's that working for you? <laughs> so you talked about the psychological well-being and I want to focus on that. And I read a piece of yours online. I can't remember what it's called, but it is in around the default settings or the status quo of life. And just in my realm, from my personal experience and being a financial planner for over 10 years, it seems when it comes to money that, I mean, at least here in Canada, there's this socially constructed narrative we subscribe to that's like, go to school, go to college, buy a house, get a car, chase all these promotions and then post it on social media to validate ourselves. So we make people feel like, ah, oh, we've made it. We've got it good. But we start to realize there's a cost of this, a psychological cost, perhaps. Sometimes people call this the pursuit of money or the rat race. But it's this idea of subscribing to, like I said, that social constructed narrative, which is that default setting or the status quo. What is the psychological cost of never questioning the status quo and suppressing our own inner values, our desires, and attempt to conform to the tribe? It's a big question. It's a really <laughs> good question. So it starts with this. There are a lot of benefits for accepting the status quo. One of the reasons that we have conformity, and this is a theory by, I'm going to butcher his last name, Justin Thibault, is that 
we seek predictability. That's why we have three pound brains and it's, it's us and the cetaceans, whales and dolphins with the largest brains out there. And we want to be able to reduce uncertainty to near zero. And one way of doing that is that when we interact with other people, that we can really carefully curate what their response is going to be and then how we can respond in turn. So three turns we're predicting as a social chess match. I'm going to say something. You're going to respond in a particular way. I'm going to try to predict it so I have a ready-made response and I'm not going to have a pause or anxiety and round three that happens there. Now, multiply this by the number of people are interacting. Multiply it by the number of people that are, there's so many mugs in our face, strangers, outsiders that we've never, that we have to interact with from cashiers to baristas to priests and rabbis and teachers and librarians and crossing guards and, you know, neighbors. It just goes, it goes on and on. There's so many predictions and we are so effective socializing. When you think about all of these amazing decision-making opportunities that occur, the speed to which we come up with the responses and the fluidity for which this happen, it's, it's mind-boggling how little we actually break down in terms of stress and emotional overwhelm and anguish that happens there. One of the things that conformity does is it allows us to make very carefully curated predictions of how much energy is necessary, that cortical power that's, that I have to use to interact with somebody. And if someone conforms to the proper typical responses, so if I ask how you're doing, typical greeting is I don't actually really want to know. I don't want to know if you're in the, going down towards a depressive episode. I don't want to know if you have difficulty with your parents and you're wondering if they're going to have early onset dementia. And I don't really want to know if you have irritable bowel syndrome. You're supposed to say good is your typical response. It's a horrible interaction, very predictable. And then I talk about whatever I want to talk about. Oh, by the way, did I tell you, I was thinking about booking a flight to Colorado because they have these new whiskey bars out there. That's a nice three-part social interaction, which is very predictable. When someone is nonconformist, they dissent, they disagree, they deviate. What happens is it becomes high maintenance in terms of it requires more energy than necessary to have this social interaction. So conformity has its beauty. Everybody is using a very efficient level of cortical power in terms of their, their physical body only has so much energy over the course of a day unless it's being renewed. And society has great locomotion, which means you're very efficient and effective at acquiring the goals that you want to. You have harmony, you have positivity, you have cohesion. I could write an entire book about the cell of being, being conformist that happens there. Here's the mantra. Here's the bumper sticker for right now, which is deviating from social norms is going to be problematic in the short term for the person that dissents, but is incredibly powerful and beneficial for the growth and evolution of the group. Because your dissent is that, especially if it's principle, is you're pointing out the frailties, the dysfunctions, the difficulties, the inefficiencies in social norms. So the whole idea, if you go back to what I just hypothetically said before, which isn't that hypothetical, if I ask you how you're doing, I don't really care about you. I'm just saying the proper greeting. Well, that norm is horrible. Why not ask the question of, hey, Sean, what's good since the last time I saw you? Which is, by the way, how I often interact with people when I go to the pickleball court or to the gym or when I go on at work. I wait and I'm waiting for, for there's going to be something. And some people will say, no, no, nothing. I'm like, well, 
what's the least bad thing that's happened to you then? So right away, we're having a conversation and you are having nostalgic moments and I'm getting to know you better. And then who knows where that conversation goes? It does require an extra level of energy on both of our parts. But what I would argue is, what else are you saving your energy for other than meaningful social interactions? Can you expand, expand on when you say principal rebel? Because I mean, it's, I think it's intentional, the, the title of your book, The Art of Insubordination, which you've talked about is a, a, a word we don't usually use in the context that you use it, which I think is wonderful you are. But when you say principled, uh, can you expand on what you mean by principled rebel? Yeah, I turned so I'm turning intentionally a word that's used as a negative and using it as a positive because it is. This is how people get fired, right? Rebecca Jones was fired not too long ago because she defied the COVID counting in Florida and the governor wanted her to do it, uh, you know, falsify the data. She said no, and it said in the news, Rebecca Jones was fired for insubordination. Well, guess what? She did the morally appropriate thing. She may have saved lives by her behavior. Government officials uh, went into her house and stole all of her computer equipment and she was fired. Insubordination is the world is a bunch of hierarchies. Even, you know, if we go out for dinner with, you know, Sean, you, me, and a few of our friends, there's going to be a social hierarchy of who is the most socially attractive people, the people, person that people want to curry favor from, who gets the most attention when they speak, whose jokes do people actually laugh the most, who, when they actually open their mouth, are people most likely to put their phones away. There's going to be a little bit of a hierarchy there. Who's so physically attractive that the most interesting person to stare at because you got to look at something when you're in a social gathering. So why not just look at beautiful, interesting people? When it comes to the world, insubordination is we refuse rules, authorities, norms, ideas that are in the mainstream that we view as problematic. Now, that's not necessarily principled because, you know, white supremacists and cop killers, they're engaging in insubordination, but we're not going to make an argument that either one of those is principled insubordination. So it basically comes into an, I turn it into an equation so people can figure out how to increase it. Or if they're a, uh, a tyrannical figure who's reading this book, how to decrease principled rebellions. Deviance, authenticity, and contribution are the three core elements you want to increase. So you're talking about, I'm going to deviate. I'm going to express my individuality. I'm going to recognize what's problematic. I'm going to call out the unspeakable thing that everyone seems to be agreeing on, but I know that it's absurd. The notion that you can go into a store right now and buy a onesie for a boy. Maybe, you're, maybe you and your wife did this for your, your two boys, and it could say lady killer on it. Well, that's a problematic shirt. Now, I know it's supposed to be cute, but it's basically saying is that I, at the age of one, am raising a child to go into bars at age 18 and be a hunter and troll for women for one night stands. And it's amazing. And the whole family supports it. And this one-year-old, their entire path is planned for them, how they're going to be an incredibly annoying character in a lot of women's lives. I, I really appreciate that last example of like, and expanding on this principled rebel in that I've even read how in the book, it, it talks about how you separate principled insubordination from destructive forms of disagreement you know, there's certain things going on in Canada right now at the borders that some might feel like, ah, oh, this is, the, you know, I don't believe in certain things. So I'm being, I'm going against the norm. And I think putting that layer of definition of principled helps us maybe guide in towards what is, what is something that we should be 
consistently fighting for what is, I don't, I don't want to say right or wrong, but it helps us make that moral decision perhaps. Well, think about this for, and I, I've only read, I know less because I'm not living in Canada about the truckers than you probably do, but I'll pose this. So the authenticity part, right? That's it. This is a genuine expression of what you care about, what you value and who you are. Well, we know from what's happening at the borders in terms of this trucker strike is that a lot of this is a way to signal that you are part of this particular group, this political ideology, as opposed to the actual thing and strike that's happening right now. So already there's a question about authenticity. And the second part is about contribution is one of the elements. And this is, are you doing this to constructively improve society or are you the five-year-old kid who's stomping their feet and smashing their hand against the table saying, I don't want to do this. I want to do it this way. So what I would say with the truckers example is the principle insubordination begins with a bunch of questions that aren't being asked, which is what's your end game? And then what you're fighting for right now, what is subservient to that goal? Because here are a few of the things as examples that it's getting in the way of healthcare equipment, getting to hospitals is actually getting in the way. So is the concern about masks in terms of wearing a mask more important than there are people, there are children and there are older adults and they're across the entire age spectrum who are not getting access to medical equipment, not getting access to blood supplies and not getting access to physicians because the roadways are being blocked. So even if you remove COVID from the equation, if you had to rank order the importance of those two things, making sure that hospitals get their supplies and their people to save people's lives versus wearing cloth over your face, of those two, explain to me from a place like I really want to know, like which is more important to you and why? Because there's always trade-offs. And I think part of the principled insubordination conversation is which trade-offs are you willing to accept? And that's not part of either side's conversation right now. It's either they're right or they're wrong, which is exactly the phrase you said, which is like the wrong way to look at this. The way to look at this is, are you comfortable with the trade-offs? And that's the principled rebellion to the rebellion that's happening there. And my suspicion is a lot of these people who are doing this, they're not really thinking about, well, what's the sacrifice that's being made for us blocking this here? And if they were to really think about this, especially if they actually got someone burning a camera, uh, this is what's happening at the hospital. This is the room for the blood donor supply. We're now at 23, I'm making this number up. We're now at 23% capacity. When we're at 60% capacity, Everyone is functioning well and able to have their surgeries on time, whether it's the oncologist, whether it's the maternity ward, whether it ends up being the neurosurgeons that are happening there. We are at half of the supply that we want to. How do you feel about that? Now, my guess is, is that mostly people, to give them a room, space to answer, like, I hadn't thought about that before. That would be the appropriate response by most people. And now let's have a productive dialogue about this. I have like, of not to meet in the middle necessarily, but to really start asking the questions about these topics. And we could play the same, we could play the same approach if we're talking about diversity and quotas and affirmative action. We could, you know, we we need to be having conversations. And it requires you to rebel from the norm, which is that my side believes this and my side believes this. And I'm not going to question my side because I don't want them to lose in the culture war. Well, Start asking questions about your home turf first, because we can have aspirational goals for society 
and you could still be a functional member of your group. You don't have to choose between the two, and most people are making an unnecessary false binary choice between the two. I, I really appreciate that answer. And, you know, your book has come out at the right time. I know you've been writing this book pre-COVID, pre-pandemic. It almost seems like there's an order, though, cultivating curiosity, understanding about our negative emotions, and now this book. But I feel like your response right there can, holy smokes, can that diffuse and disarm so many rigid thinking, like you just said, you're right or wrong. That's it. I want to get in this idea of a lot of what we've been talking about. So I want to hold on to this authenticity contribution. And then also we started talking about conforming to the group has a lot of benefits to it. From an evolution standpoint, I mean, if we ran away from the tribe, it wouldn't be very good. We would probably wouldn't survive. So evolutionary perspective, sticking to the tribe or conforming to the tribe was good. What about when, and I'm making an assumption here, but the, the conforming to this back to money, this pursuit of money or the illusion of money is going to give me safety, belonging, security, these psychological basic needs that are told to me that I will get once I have this money. But what we know from a lot of research with hedonic adaptation is as we get more, we, we adopt to that level, we keep going for more and more. So I don't want to paint a picture that all of this is problematic because there's money helps a lot of people in their basic needs and like it's really important. But I, I feel like there's this point where this illusion of conforming to the standard prescription of how you should acquire money, how long you should work, how many hours a day could very well be questioned by many. And how can this idea that you talk about psychological flexibility help us perhaps get a better relationship with our money? I love that you're, you're capturing the complexity of being human, which is we need more mediums where people do this and as opposed to reducing it simply as, is pursuing money good or bad? Is being materialistic good or bad? I mean, you're getting to the sophistication. I mean, Elizabeth Dunn has this great research about being more flexible about money where she talks about, well, what, what are the parameters that we know from evidence where money ends up leading to well-being? You know, one of the big problems of scientists and we'll just say the self-help book market in general is, listen, you make $70,000 a year as a family household and kind of you maximize your well-being and you don't need any more and you're good to go. No, that's not what the research shows. The research shows is that here's a couple of parameters where money will constantly increase your well-being. One, if you're paying for experiences and not things, well, that's a big, huge bucket. So if you're talking about going to Colorado to go hit the whiskey bars, if you're talking about going to Nashville because your friends keep saying, why do you keep saying you hate country music? You need to see real country music. We're going to Nashville, Tennessee. And by the way, I had this, this, I had this view and I went there and I was like, oh, now I get it. I can <laughs> feel the pain of country musicians live. Whoa, it's really good. I still like it on the radio when, it's, when they water down the emotions, right? So when you buy that experience, and it could be expensive, right? The hotel, the food, you know, paying for the concerts and kind of everything else is that that will always increase your well-being. Two, spending money on other people. So let's, you know, I went to Australia pre-COVID and I got to be the opening act for the Dalai Lama at a couple stops. My cousin, who's in his 30s, had never traveled outside the country. So I paid for him to come with me to Australia. It's a lot of money. Guess what? He still talks about it today. It's like nine years later. He's still talking about it. Just keeps on, it keeps on paying off dividends over and over again. And it's, it 
the bond that we have, no offense to my other cousins, if you're listening to this, with him is stronger because we spent two weeks together in Australia. When you pay for things now and get things later, the opposite of a credit card, you end up having greater well-being. The reason is we forget that there are three temporal dimensions, not just like parts of time for every experience. One is the experience itself, right? That's being on the cruise ship, you know, seeing the beautiful sights. And that's, well, actually a lot of ugly sights on a cruise ship in terms of a lot of gorgers. One is the postmortem. When you have photographs, as you mentioned, Sean, you're posting it online, you're telling people stories about the trip. But the other one is the anticipation. And one of the reasons that I often don't do surprises with my kids and loved ones is that I know the science, which is people really love the long runway to experience. They're going into Rick Stevens' guide, if that's even a thing anymore with the internet, where I have to learn about like, all right, what are the secret restaurants? What are kind of the secret haunts and kind of the coolest museums to go to? And they're researching it. Now, if I tell you that, you know, Sean, this podcast was amazing. I bought us a trip to Venice so we can go hit some museums together. It's We're leaving in two hours. I deprived you of the anticipatory experience of telling your wife, arguing with your wife, telling your kids, showing your kids, showing your your son in kindergarten on a map. Here's where I'm going to be in Venice. This is where we are. Look, see how far it is. Or if they're really sad that you're going to be gone, you say, see how close they are. You get a different map that you show them the kind of the issue. All of that is part of what you're paying for. And so if we understand how to use money well, We can constantly refresh and expand our level of well-being. And let's not do this simplistically and just say pursuing money is a bad thing. That's the psychological flexibility approach, which is pursuing what we care about, knowing the end goals we're looking for, despite the presence of the ambiguity and the distressing emotions about is that come in the way of trying to go for these, these difficult, challenging things that we're aiming for and working hard is evokes a lot of emotions because there's a lot of people listening that they'd like to have it all, spend all the time with their close friends, all the time with their romantic partner, all the time with their little ones and go to the gym and read books and we can't do it all. So we can be very efficient if we learn evidence-wise what's the best way of living a good life. When you were saying we want to do this and do that and do this, at least personally, I, I, I'm starting to see just to your point on Dunn's research on how to spend our money, but also this idea, I feel like psychological flexibility allows us to almost see money as a window into ourselves to see and lean into. Because for me, I was I feared some of the things around money. So I just wanted to save, save, save. And when I started to reduce my rigidity and become more curious as to why that's there, it was just like so insightful that these, to your, your second book, how a lot of these negative emotions that get us to act, react, react around money can be such a valuable learning lesson. And um, I don't know if you want to touch on the the value that these negative emotions, whether it's money or anything, can be such valuable teachers or lessons in our lives. Yeah. I mean, just I'll take my favorite negative emotion. And I'm glad you said it because I actually do view the, um, this third book as part of a trilogy where you oh. went from <laughs> curiosity. So you're the only person to kind of capture that where, you know, I studied curiosity for several years. Then I studied, well, Everything that people is talking about, about the benefits of mindfulness and positive emotions and being kind, 
there's always times where the opposite's beneficial. Like, let's be very precise and granular about how to live with the yin yang of having, you know, embrace our dark side and the good side. And sometimes the dark side is exactly what we need. Sometimes we have to be selfish. Sometimes we have to be miserly. Sometimes we have to be narcissistic and say, you know what? I'm going to start a podcast because I have a voice. I have things to say. They're valuable. And I want to have these conversations. And I feel good about that. You know, a little bit of narcissism is a good thing. That's what gets <laughs> you kind of gets the wheels into motion for kind of, you know, altering the the course of your personal history and human history. It all starts with people who have the the gall and the courage of saying, think of Galileo. I don't know his personality too well. We don't have the autobiographical information, but you got to have some cojones to challenge the church in the 1700s and, and be willing to go to prison to say, listen, bros, because there's no women there at this time, bros, like, listen, you got this all wrong. Like the interstellar movement, it's all wrong. And no, God's wrong. Everyone's wrong. I mean, there's some grandiosity in there, but we, thanks to Galileo, you know, a lot of cool things have happened since then. And there, and there are Galileos among us who are experiencing the social persecution, which was the prisons of the 1700s. But I, I digress from, from your question. That's all right. We have a, I want to be mindful of the time. I have one last question and we have a treat for you. That's going to take about three minutes probably. But my last question, so I just say that you, you use time to answer this question, but imagine you're at end of life, whatever life expectancy that is, and you're sitting somewhere that brings you peace. Perhaps it's looking at an ocean, a meadow, a mountain, climbing Mount Fuji with your kids, or back to that rooftop New York City party where you met your wife Wherever brings you peace and you're dis- you decide to write a letter to your children's children on what you learned about having a healthy relationship with money, what would be a theme to that letter? So it is, it is Mount Fuji with my daughter, Raven, um, that we did get a chance to climb when she was 12 years old. It fits very nicely with, with the conversation we've been having, which is money is the vehicle to acquire the experiences that are the richest, the most valuable, the most poignant in your life. And to be deprived of that is to live a life of some level of deprivation. And there's a part of me that actually uh, has great compassion and desire to improve the lives of people that are economically and socially disadvantaged. Because if you work hard and you do your share for society, you should not be deprived of these experiences. And for those people that have the fortune and have the, you know, have put in the effort and the work to acquire their financial experiences, I want to help them and guide them to realize, listen, there is a way or there's multiple ways in terms of transforming this money and having this transaction where you acquire these experiences that are rich, where you, you know, find wisdom and find the relativity of your perspective such that when you travel in Sri Lanka and you travel in South Korea and you travel in Cambodia and you travel to Mount Fuji is that what you appreciate is that all of the things that you stress about, many of them are inconsequential and they are purely a function of what society tells you. This is something that you should be concerned about. And there's a beauty of using money to to travel and experience other people's perspectives to realize that many of the things that keep you up at night are things that are unnecessary and it's needless suffering. Thank you. I I really, really appreciate that answer. I mentioned to you, we have a surprise and do you have a couple minutes? This might take two minutes to go over. I'm not going to turn down a surprise. Okay. So Root Hub is a friend of mine. He's a musician from Hawaii 
And we've been collaborating on these things called abundance anthems or money anthems that we've met with people. We talk about their conversations, their stories about money. And then he on the spot creates a song and it's, it's a phenomenal. So he's going to, he's summarizing our conversation right now. And this was not pre-recorded and he's going to sing us a song and I'll sing you the MP3 file. So you have it for your own, what? for your own keeping. As Rudhub just finalizes everything, the art of insubordination comes out 16th? Yesterday. Yesterday. Your other books, where can people find more information about Todd? Yeah, forget my other books. This is the, the thing I've been waiting my entire life to write. Came out yesterday. It's available on Amazon. The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively. And it's really about, it's not about rebels or insubordination. It's really about how do we create a better lives for ourselves that is off the beaten path that matches our values and personality and outside the mainstream if necessary. And how do we create a, a world that's closer to a utopian vision and with all of the tools, tactics, and strategies for getting there. It's available everywhere. Amazon, Barnes Noble, uh, Powell's Books. And you can go to my website, toddcashin.com. And Todd Cashin is my, that's my tag for Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, everywhere. It's probably a tattoo somewhere on some lower part of my body that I haven't seen in a mirror. <laughs> I highly encourage everyone to look at this book. Your your team was kind enough to let me read a, a PDF copy. And the writing is, it, it allows the everyday person to read it, despite you bringing so much scientifically evidence-based information. You're a funny guy as well. So I really enjoyed that read. So I highly recommend everyone to go get a copy of your book and your, your blog posts are awesome, awesome as well. Appreciate that. Big time. So we're going to bring Rudhub on and actually Rudhub and I are writing an album on awakening our money stories. That's a cool project. And here is Todd Cashton's instant money anthem. Aloha from Los Angeles today, got here this morning and I'm stoked. I happen to be a, uh, a principled rebel. So <laughs> this just aligns fine. So here we go. This is our distilled instant anthem we share together. Subordination in full bloom. Fruit of freedom, harvest coming soon. Discovering abundance in a brand new way. You got principle rebellion with curiosity cultivation. They call in adjacent possibility situations.
Thank you for tuning in this week. What a wonderful episode. Todd has so much insight and value to provide us, the listeners, the readers of his fantastic book. And I really appreciate Todd taking the time out of his day to come chat with us on the Most Hated Effort podcast. And thank you to RootHub for providing us with his magic once again as he provides Todd with an instant anthem. I really encourage everybody to go go out and get a copy of Todd's book, The Art of Insubordination. I found it an extremely insightful book that I have heavily highlighted because it was just so good. Until next week, have yourself a good one.